Welcome birders. This is Ed Pullen, your host on the Bird Banter Podcast, where birders talk birding. Today has been a fabulous day for vagrants in fall migration in Pierce County, where I live, Pierce County, Washington. This morning, Wayne Sladek found a shorebird at 56th Street that turned out to be a rough. Bruce got there and, with a discerning eye, uh, figured out that the shorebird was a rough, a juvenile rough, and most of us got over to see it this morning. Really cool. I was on my way to work this afternoon. I worked this afternoon at the residency program and uh, got to stop and check out the rough on the way. Really cool. And Charlie Wright, one of the really keen birders here in Pierce County, young guy, uh, stopped by and saw the rough and, on his way home, uh, stopped at the mouth of the Puyallup River from Thea Park to check that out at low tide and found two brown pelicans, an adult and a juvenile. Brown pelicans are uncommon in the inner sound in fall, but seen some years, last two or three years they've been seen, but unusually one of these was an adult. Usually the birds we get in here are juveniles, and this was one of these was an adult, and I got to see them on my way home from work today. What I didn't get to see were the other great birds he saw there at low tide at midday. He had a marble godwit, and a wimbrel, both good Pierce County birds, unusual birds in the county. And he got he saw those, and Bruce got down to see them, uh, maybe some others. Uh, and then, just as I was getting home from work today, Charlie again came through with an Arctic turn at dunes. This is a second straight fall. Arctic turns have been seen in Commencement Bay. Pretty unusual, I think. Uh, I think the, the birds last year were uh, county lifers for several birders. So I'm hoping... Hoping, hoping, I'll get my county first Arctic turn this fall. Uh, they're not there for me to chase, so that's why I'm doing this recording right now. But anyway, really good day in fall migration for Pierce County birders. My guest today is a county birder too, but he's a county birder from Yakima County, Washington. He's more than just a county birder, he's just an all-round highly accomplished birder. Andy Stekniewski is my guest this episode, and Andy is uh, just a really all-round naturalist and fabulous birder. He lives in Yakima County, Washington, and has found lots of great birds there, but Andy grew up in California, and I learned on the podcast that one of his mentors growing up was Jim Lane. You probably have heard of Jim Lane from the Lane series of bird guides. Jim Lane was the if not the first, one of the first people to start writing sight guides of how to find birds in a certain area. And he came up with a series of those books that came out to be the ABA uh, series after after they were the Lane series. So he is quite a well-known birder, and he apparently was really into birding by habitat, knowing what to expect in certain habitats. And Andy was one of the young birders uh, who he helped along and taught and took along on trips. And so Andy really became in tune with habitat, knowing what to expect in certain habitats and really learning the nuances of the plants and the animals and the birds there. And it's cool now because Andy is one of our local gurus on the shrub step habitat. Shrub step habitat is shrub stands for small plants or shrubs and step uh, is a word for grass. So grassy areas with shrubs is another way to think of shrub step habitat. And Andy really knows that habitat inside out. He's given classes on that and is just really in tune with it. The little nuances of north-facing slopes and south-facing slopes and 
habitat areas between the, the trees end and the shrubs begin. So it was really fun to talk to him about all those things, along with some of his adventures. We didn't talk about some of his more well-known adventures, his grizzly bear encounter, uh, his falling through uh, an ice bridge at at Denali in Alaska. You can read about those in an article I put a post to in the blog post that's along with this episode. Uh, there's a nice newspaper article in the, one of the local newspapers where he lives about that. But uh, we didn't talk about those. But we did talk about some other uh, episodes and adventures he's had and some cool birding experiences. So I think you're going to really enjoy hearing from Andy Stepniewski today in the Bird Banner podcast when he talks about his birding story and some of his experiences. So help me welcome Andy Stepniewski to the Bird Banner Podcast. Andy, welcome to the Bird Banner Podcast. Thanks for being my guest today. Thank you. Happy to be here. Yeah, it's fun. I've, uh, I've only seen you a few times in the field because you live quite a ways from here. Yes, uh, Yakima, Washington. So 150 miles over the mountains. Yeah, I'm, I'm here in Tacoma. Very cool. And Andy, that is a cool place that you live in. The whole, that whole Columbia Valley, Yakima, the habitat there is so cool. I just love getting over. And you are sort of an expert, at least I think an expert on the whole shrub step habitat ecosystem. Uh, how did, how did you come to be so interested in that? Well, uh, it stems back from my uh, teenage days growing up in Southern California um, I wasn't initially interested in uh, birds. My brother and I were turtle freaks. Oh. At a pond with a little island in it, which we dug ourselves, you know, and lined it with concrete. And we had all these turtles. And then one day on the wires, right above me, a bird sang. And I looked, I ran into the, for some reason, it prompted me to run in the house to get my parents' binoculars which were old World War II vintage, probably weighed five pounds. And I looked up at the bird and I saw it was red on the head and breast. And I thought, well, I'm gonna try to find out what that is. And so I went to uh, the high school library and picked out the only bird book, which was a Peterson's Mm -hmm. and um, brought it home and looked through it and noticed I was probably looking at a finch. Uh And so that was the process in which I identified my first life bird, house finch. And I often retell that story because it, you know, involved using learning field marks. It's the only streaked finch in, of the three in the, uh, on the West Coast. So mm-hmm. that, was, uh, that was my first life bird. And I started going through the book frontwards, backwards, and back again, and I started realizing I probably knew more birds than I thought. And I think I picked up, picked out 20 live birds just without even thinking about it. Crow, Canada goose, etc. But I soon realized that to learn the birds, I was going to have to learn habitats. Southern California isn't a featureless place. There's mountains. There's a rain shadow from the uh, the coast being wetter, the mountains the wettest, and then there's the deserts. And I, and I realized that the field guide was talking about habitats all the time. So my first book I still have, which is Native Trees of Southern California. Very cool. And um, not only do you have to learn the trees, 
but you have to learn the vegetation zones. And so I picked up Sierra Nevada Natural History, which has got this marvelous key to the trees of all the vegetation zones, these being in the Sierra Nevada, but coastal Southern California is no different. Right. And finally, I learned I was going to have to learn vocalizations. That was <laughs> the, the most difficult. Although my ears remain pretty, pretty good, I, it was a long road to learning um, bird vocalizations. And I'm really, really, really happy I still have ears to hear all these birds. I am blessed in the same way. I Even as an older guy, I, I can still hear. I go out with my friends, and boy, I am the ears in our group sometimes. Yeah. So that was those were my initial couple of years of birding. That was in the late 60s in Southern California. And re my mentor was Jim Lane, which... Uh, <laughs> yeah, everybody knows the Campbell's Lane series, sure. Southern California. Yeah, and... Southeast Arizona. And it turns out, I didn't know this when I first picked up these pamphlets, and they were just mere pamphlets. I, it turns out he was a member of the Audubon chapter I joined. And I think in the spring of 1970, he advertised a trip to Southeast Arizona. And so my brother, who was 14 or 15 at the time, and myself, and another father and his daughter went along. So it was a real personalized tour by the expert, by the first person to write, you know, a site guide. Mm -hmm. And he was a birder by habitat. And during the course of six or seven, maybe eight days in Southeast Arizona, saw most of the key species and really jacked up my life list, you know, 70 species in one week. And that was a real joy. But it was his influence that never left me the idea of habitats, vocalizations, and the use of a site guide that probably was seminal in, you know, prompting me to get interested in doing a similar one for Washington. That is something for people who don't know. Andy was uh, one of the driving forces behind uh, writing uh, the V definitive uh, site, bird finding site guide, a birder's guide to Washington uh, through the Washington Ornithological Society. And, and the cool thing about that, Andy, is now it's free online. You can go to the WASP site and, and get that online free. You guys, what a, what a labor of joy and love that must have been. Yeah. It, isn't it amazing that all this information is available so readily online? This is all in the last 25 or so years. We have to admit, though, that eBird is the way a lot of people now find their birds. So, <laughs> sure, but there's I, nothing I, like there's nothing like carrying that uh, you know big thick Bible-like tome in the back seat, and when you say, "Well, I'm 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 here. Where can I go birding today?" You flip through that, and you say, "Oh, that's not too far away," and it gives great directions. I mean, you learn from the pro. The lane guides are you know infamous i mean they're just they are the definitive guides to everywhere and i didn't have any idea that you, you were a protege of lane wow wow well he, he's a fantastic person and always willing to share and um i won't forget those years i bet you won't uh, so tell me how did the process go down i mean the washington 
uh, Birder's Guide to Washington is really a fabulous book. How did how did that come to be? Did were you know was it your idea? Who came up with the idea? Who was involved? You know, it's getting fuzzy in my memory. I believe I approached Wass and said, you know, when the time comes that reprinting Wall and Paulson, right, which was the original site guide for Washington, when that wasn't going to happen either because Dennis Paulson or Terry Wall weren't interested in revising it, then I'd really like to propose a lane guide for Washington. Mm-hmm. So I, 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 I'm trying to remember exactly the chain of events, but probably went to this sort of this effect. Well, if you're interested in it, why don't you start it? <laughs> so I did. I, I contacted Hal Opperman at, to um, join the team, and he was a senior editor. Mm-hmm. And he, um, he guided the pro- process through, it was probably a three-year-long writing phase and a lot field checking. And for anyone who wants to embark on a guide like this, I can, uh, there's possibly a few people on this planet that can visit a site once and write it up and not have to revisit it again. But you know, my wife, Ellen, and I, I think, ended up visiting each site three times. And even on the third visit, we would find things to tweak. You know, it might not be directions, but it might be just the flavor of how we presented mm-hmm. a site. So um, I noticed when we talked to o- Oregon birders who were in the midst of considering doing a lane guide, mm-hmm. ABA now. Right. They, I think they were, it was starting to dawn on them. This is no weekend project. This is, this is going to consume you for a, a, at least a few years. But, uh, you know, with Hal's expertise as an editor, it, I think um, the results uh, were favorable. Oh, I, I think that's an understatement. It's a fabulous resource. I just, uh, I, I mean, I, no, when uh, when Ken Brown, my good birding buddy, or Bruce Blabar, and, and I head out, we'll say, "Who has who has the who has the ABA guide? Who has the the big green book? You know, who has the the guide?" Because we just don't don't hit the road without it. You never know when you're going to want to get the details, and you might not have internet access to get to the online one. Which is, and for me, you know, a book is just so much easier to thumb through and find things than going through an on. Even though online things are handy, they're not the same as having a book. You know, we were doing a field trip to Weenus Lake today with eight participants, and I started to whip out my iBird Pro app to show mm-hmm. folks field marks. It might have been right. Red Valero. Mm-hmm. Ellen said, you know, out in this light, it's a lot easier to whip out a field guide. You know, and so books are not going to be replaced. it'll be a few generations at least before people are so used to looking at a glaring screen that they don't want a paper thing in front of them. At least, uh, at least our generation will have gone away before that happens. I'm sure. Right. Yeah. Andy, you have, I'm sure you've done lots of other things, but you also did the birds of Yakima County, Washington book. Uh, It's a couple of decades ago that you wrote that, but uh, I was reminded of how important books like that are. When I talked with Bill Twight, he did the the status and distribution of birds in Washington state, the sort of 
50 year update of that some time ago. And, and those right. are, uh, you know, I, I question, I says, well, why do, why do those have any relevance? I mean, everything's on eBird. What, what do you even need that sort of thing for? And it, it is kind of having a snapshot in time, a, a more all in one place sort of thing. It, it plays a role. So tell me, how did you come to be motivated to do that? And what, what do you think? Uh, why do you think it was important? I did not embark on the project with a book in mind. Oh, it was probably I just wanted to do what Bill and Terry did for Birds of Washington to start compiling what was known about birds in Yakima County. And as I got into it, and especially as I delved into the history of ornithology in the county and recognizing all the habitats stacked up the Cascade East Slope, I go, wow, there's a lot to talk about here. And so it it morphed into a book. And somewhere along the line, I asked Phil Maddox, who lived in who lives in Ellensburg, if he'd be willing to help with the editing, and he he agreed. So I felt like I had I was going to get reasonably excellent guidance and probably spent three or four years compiling the information. And it turns out Cindy Lippincott who's the ABA uh, editor of the Lane series guides, Right. said, oh, I'll, I'll wrap up this Yakima County, you know, get it formatted. Uh, and so she saw it through the publication, which was nice. and Bob Berman, her husband, who did the bar graphs. So I had the same resources that ABA does in a publication for little old Yakima County. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it is. I, I, I doubt that there's such a thing for most of the counties in Washington or most of the counties anywhere. It's a, I mean, Yakima County is, a, it's, a, it's, I mean, it's not that big a place. I mean, it, you know, it's, it's a cool county, but I mean, in terms of when you think of not, there's a Yakima is there and there are a modest number of people, but it, it, to have a resource like that for a relatively small rural Washington County is pretty darn cool. Well, it, you know, my home patch, and so I have been focusing on it for now uh, over 40 years, and it's, uh, I continue to learn a lot. And the bird life, of course, is changing as habitats change. Sure. Mostly, mostly for the worse. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately. Uh- you, I think of when I think of you and habitat, I think of sage step habitat, which is kind of a cool habitat. With, I mean, you came and talked to us at our uh, ABC Birding Club about shrub step habitat and the birds there. And you brought in, uh, I think, three different types of sagebrush, and we all smelled it and felt it and looked at the little leaves, and it was really fun. Uh, tell me some of the cool things about that habitat. And especially when I was just glancing at your book, it reminded me when I sat down with Mike Denny out in Walla Walla County, he talked a lot about the South facing slopes and North facing slopes and how the, the habitats different and the birds are different. And when you look for this, you look there and there. And I was like, wow, that, how does anyone know all that stuff? But I just glanced through the front of your book and you talk about the same sort of thing. So go into some detail. Well, I'm gratified that you recall I presented three different species of sagebrush because I I don't know how I was enlisted to help with classes at Seattle Audubon, but this would have been 20 or more years ago. And we ended up doing, I think, 17 years of classes for Seattle Audubon. 
And we went elsewhere in the state, like to Tacoma with your group, elsewhere, East Side Audubon, I remember. I went to Pullman once to give it. So that was really gratifying also to have a calling for uh, spreading the gospel, if you will, about the shrub step. So uh, I don't know what has enamored me about that landscape. Maybe being a Californian where a lot of the landscapes are open because, you know, low precipitation, a lot of desert. But the shrub step is not a desert and it's got a lot going for it, especially in springtime, uh, March through early June. There's a lot to see and it's pretty and the birds are special. Basically an extension of the Great Basin to the south coming north in the valley bottoms. And in the same breath, I say, boreal elements from Canada and Alaska come south along our ridge tops. And in between, you have all the montane stuff from Western North America. So that's in Yakima County and the microcosm, uh, Southern elements of the Great Basin, montane stuff from the American West and boreal elements from the, the far North. And I really love conveying that that information and so the class had a long long running streak i mean covid kind of uh, interrupted it i don't know if it'll reappear but, or whether there's still demand for it we'll find out <laughs> yeah we'll see but it was really fun and then i was I regret, I don't remember why I couldn't go on the field trip, the Sparrow field trip. I, I think it was a, the field trip, I don't know if it's a Sparrow field trip, but I thought of it as a Sparrow field trip out to the shrub step in, in the Yakima area that you took the ABC group on the next spring. And I think I had bad one of my kids. I don't remember why I couldn't go, but Kay went, my wife went, and she came back. Oh, you saw, you missed this fabulous trip. And because she, she remembers, she doesn't remember the birds so much. She remembers the habitat. She remembers the, what do you call the crust on the earth there that, that you know, you have to be, try not to disrupt because it takes forever to develop. And she talked about all these things. I said, wow. Yeah, that's the cryptogamic crust, the hidden crust. <clears throat> So, um, which is, by the way, become increasingly rare and disturbed. It's a relic of once of what it once was. Yeah. So basically, it, it, what Kay told me, at least, it's the multi-organisms form the crust of the earth that keep invasive bad stuff from growing and let the native stuff develop. And, and it can be disrupted by a footstep or, you know, a, people footsteps or cattle footsteps, especially or the, you know, sheep footsteps, that sort of thing are the things that will disrupt that and let things like cheatgrass and other nasty invasives uh, take over. Yeah, the shrub step is definitely under siege and cattle and humans are just one element. There's lots of other things going on against it. Yeah. Development and agriculture, uh, obviously, and, and climate change and yeah, I'm sure there are well fires. Beads <laughs> which beget fires mm-hmm. of the cheatgrass carpet. And that's a concept that's only now gaining widespread you know, knowledge amongst folks in the West to preserve this landscape. We're gonna have to tackle the this weed problem, else the birds and the landscape are not going to survive. It's simply put, they're not. It's uh, the fires are just so uh, attuned to 
grabbing a whole a carpet of cheatgrass and it's a blanket fire, a landscape level fire, not just a patch anymore. These can go on for tens of thousands of acres. Yeah. As example, last Labor Day, I think last Labor Day in North Central Washington, fires consumed 880,000 acres of shrub steppe. And probably more than half the sage grouse habitat remaining in the state. It is a serious question whether sage grouse and sharp-tailed grouse will survive in the state. They're, they're, on, they're on the brink. Yeah, it's certainly a, a, an incredibly challenging issue. I, 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 can't, I can't imagine how that's going to end well. <laughs> Just maybe I'm not optimistic enough, but I, I just can't imagine how that cheatgrass thing is out of, that's like a genie out of the bottle. It's just, boy, I don't know how you'd ever recover. Well, uh, conservation minded folks are hard at work on the issue and it's got the, uh, the attention of politicians also. So agencies and uh, conservationists throughout the American West are, are working really hard on this. So there was a fabulous podcast on bird notes about uh, uh, sage grouse and the whole shrub step issue. It's like six episodes. It's, it's, I'll put a po- link in the podcast notes. It's a fabulous, I listened to it. It's like, wow. I mean, I, I, in my naivety thought, well, it's all about, you know, cattle grazing and development. And it's so much more complicated than that. You're right. So um, at any rate, the, conservation community is rallying behind this issue and i am a member of the quote make it happen committee following the songbird sagebrush songbird studies of the last five or eight years that washington Audubon has um, spearheaded and so now all this data on the focal species which are brewers sparrow uh sagebrush sparrow and Sage Thrasher. The data is in, rather than just have the data sit in um, archives somewhere or in the cloud, the Washington Audubon proposed a follow-up committee to, you know, spur action for the preservation of uh, the shrub step in the Columbia Basin. And so I'm a member of that and key staff on Washington Audubon are also Cool. Our other Audubon members. So the, the issue is being tackled on head on by lots of folks, including Audubon Washington. Yeah, I'm I'm glad to hear that. That's exciting. How did that study go on? What I I you know just heard bits and pieces of of that. How did that come to be, and who did it? Well, Washington Audubon originated the concept, and it meant. Uh, galvanizing all the Audubon chapters in the Columbia Basin, mm-hmm. uh, getting their members to go out and survey at random sites in the Columbia Basin for the focal species. And I bet it took at least three or four years. Christy Norman was the project manager, and a lot of data was collected. Uh, there were a lot of enthusiastic Audubon members who were really flew with the project. It was a big deal for them. You know, Lower Columbia Basin, North Central, North Central Washington Audubon, Kittitas Audubon, 
Yakam Audubon contributed also. And all with the end goal of, you know, gathering data to aid in conservation of the landscape. And if you pre preserve habitat for the focal species, you will also for all the other critters in the landscape, insects, uh, etc., rodents, reptiles. So, sure. Where is this published? Where is it available? Yeah. As a summary document, that's a good question. You're going to spur me into asking, oh, where's the summary? Because uh, uh, I, I don't know. Okay, I'll, I'll find that out and put it in a, the blog post I put up with each episode. I, I have no idea how I'll do that, but I'll figure it out. I know right now we're reviewing a summary document to summarize the whole intent of the committee and where we're going with it. But I have till the end of August to do that. Oh, and don't hurry. So it, it, it's not ready for mass dissemination. Cool. Andy, I'm going to switch subjects a little bit. You were one of the uh, you know, driving forces, for lack of a better word, for the, the Young Birders Fund, the, now the Patrick Sullivan Young Birders Fund through WAS. Uh, was, whose idea was to come up with that? How did that all come to Well, as publication time came for the ABA guide, I started, you know, there might have been a few thousand dollars in it for me personally. Uh, that's what I was led to believe. And I thought, well, I'm in a position where I don't really, I'm, I won't really miss that if it didn't come my way. And I was thinking very much of my mentors, adults in my teenagehood who took the time to helped me along to become a birder and naturalist. And so I thought, well, I'm wondering if WAS would be open to the concept of a young birders uh, fund. And broach, I broached the board with the notion and they, they liked it. And so it was my wife and I, well, before I went to the board, I asked Ellen if if this was going to be okay with her. <laughs> move. Good move. Good move. Yeah. And she was fine with it. So that's, I believe I originated the, the notion and okay. was developed it. And, you know, I have to admit, Tom did an awful lot of work over. It sounds like he was pretty active. Yeah. 15 or more years at times discouraging for him because, it, you know, I think he visualized because of his business, um, Mm -hmm. uh, background visualized a larger a foundation type. Sure. That is, you know, that would be great. Uh, but meanwhile, let's, let's do our best with the resources we have. So um, I'm really excited that WAS continues to, to back it. And, and you, Ed, are uh, involved with that. I, I am on the board now, and I'm, I've uh, been encouraging the board to sort of revisit that and re-energize it, try to figure it out. And, and I'm happy with the progress we're at least thinking about. I don't know if we can say we've made any progress, really, but we, we have uh, had uh, young birders that have been, had good projects funded and, uh, and have some ideas of ways to expand that kind of think out of the little box that it's been in a little. So I'm hopeful that that will really come to, to blossom. I, I think we've got 
a lot of birders in WAS who would love to help and contribute and fund that if we can find a way to get it be a little more exciting for them. So I'm, I'm hopeful. We'll see. I don't know if you saw Sierra Downs. I did. Did you see the letter she wrote? Oh, my goodness. Yeah. It's like, oh, my heart swelled, you know. Sierra was able to go to Camp Chiricahua in southeast Arizona. Right. Same place as I went. I hate to admit it, more than 50 years ago. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. And um, had an extraordinary experience. I'm sure she, she saw many great sights. And not just birds, but natural history, conservation, insects, uh-huh. yes, reptiles and amphibians, and wrote up a, a dear little, um, uh, you know, trip report. Yes, it was really, it was like, my goodness, wow, what, I mean, she, she, you know, she's, what, 16 maybe or now or something, she's young. And not 16 yet. Not yet. Okay. Anyway, doesn't have her driver's license yet. Okay. That's why she birds with her dad all the time. <laughs> By the way, she just got Hudsonian Godwood on her life list today in Spokane. Oh, good for her. That's been a great bird. Uh, anyway, for those who don't know, Sierra and her dad were guests on the podcast, though, oh, 10 or 15 episodes ago. It was really fun to talk with them. Uh, Scott is just a super nice guy, and Sierra is a fabulous young birder. Right. So, so we hope with Wass's help, the, the fund continues to grow. I think it will. Uh, I'm, I'm relatively confident that that can happen. It just uh, needs to be rethought how it's, how, you know, just some little new, new energy, hopefully. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. Well, thanks. Thanks to, thanks to you and Tom for really being the, the staying power that got it started and made it st- stick around long enough to have a chance. So that's really cool. And that there's some other really good projects. It's fun. I don't know some of the older ones, but Will Brooks did that great uh, work on white crowned sparrows and the uh, pugetensis and gambles uh, songs and interaction stuff that he did. And he presented to us and that was really good stuff. And yeah, I believe his advisor is Peter Wimberger, Peter and I, Peter and I are going to meet this week to, uh, to write up a, a proposal for the WAS is thinking of having one part of the fund be for undergraduate uh, research projects and to help fund that part of it. Uh, and Peter is fairly in touch with the collegiate university people and, and, and he's going to help me write up the, how to, how to make that happen and publicize it. So I'm hoping each year we can fund something like that. Yeah, Peter said to me that Will's uh, paper was one of the finest undergrad papers ever submitted in his mind. Well, Will is brilliant young birder. Oh, you've met, you must have met Will. I mean, how can anyone not have if they've been in Washington the last five years? He's been a guest on the podcast previously also, and just such a smart guy. When Will came to UPS, it was like, wow, there are birds at UPS. I should get up there. I think he's going to he's going to graduate school this fall. I think I, I haven't had a chance to talk to him, but that's the scuttlebutt. I'm pretty confident that working with Peter will really help to solidify the idea of doing undergraduate uh, uh, projects, uh, funding some undergraduate research projects. Uh, Will's was terrific, and and actually Mason, I think it's Mason Marone is uh, going to be doing one from WSU in kind of a cool joint concept. Uh, WASS is going to be funding part of that. And there's a uh, another funding group 
national research thing or something is funding a bigger part of it. And he's going to have, I think, a part-time job for a whole college year doing some research uh, out of WSU that Peter helped me put together. I can't remember the, you can't even remember what it's studying, but it's going to be cool. And uh, so I'm hopeful that that'll be a part of it. We can continue to do uh, younger birders, uh, things like we did with Sierra. So I'm, I'm excited. Yeah. I, likewise, I am too. And let's hope for the best in this. One of the challenges with engaging young people is when I speak with others on the committee is getting them to just apply. Yeah. And, and, you know, I, I think my idea, and I could be way off on this, but I think we need to make it more of an invitation and an easier application. It was sort of out there and the word was sort of out there that there was a program. And, but if you didn't know anybody in WASP to tell you about it, it, you know, it was a little bit harder thing. So I think uh, working with undergraduates, we could work through the colleges. And I think that if we put a, a, a more simple to apply application on the website and advertise it through the local Audubon societies, I think we can now, there's no reason we shouldn't have competition for this award. We should have like 20 kids applying every year. And, and I, I don't quite know why, but I'm hoping by maybe changing the process, that'll be easier. I don't know. Maybe I'm way off on that. Well, new, new ideas can only help. Yeah, well, they can hurt too. But <laughs> anyway, we'll see. <laughs> yeah. Good. Andy, I want to uh, ask, everybody has some birding stories or some wildlife stories, outdoor things. Do you have any stories that uh, could be, you know, fun for people to listen to? Well, I've been uh, interested in northern owls Oh, because I love the mountains, alpine areas, boreal forests. And along about 1980. Eight friends of mine in British Columbia, and especially the Cannings brothers, mm-hmm. uh, Dick, Sid, and Rob, they're all naturalists. They started seeing boreal owls in the summer. In fact, one August day, they watched one capture a chipmunk in broad daylight. Wow. And as soon as I read that, I go, huh. Satan and the Okanagan are literally in the same landscape. Sure. In British Columbia in the summer, not just a winter visitor from the far northern, you know, boreal forest. If they're there in summer, that means they're probably in Washington. So I went up to the higher forest one evening in October and on the advice of Dick played a call and immediately got a response. But I didn't know what I was hearing. As Bill Maddox said, lots of things go skew in the night, which, you know, you can imagine. Sure. Sounds in the night as being from almost anything. But I described to Dick Cannings uh, this call, and he said, well, I'm pretty sure you heard a boreal owl. So I go, okay. Their chances are they're resident in these forests, and I'm not going to do this project alone. So I wrote a letter to the Okanagan National Forest and said, what do you know about these birds in your, under your jurisdiction? Right. How are you managing for them? <laughs> I immediately went down the conservation tangent. Not what they wanted to hear. Well, actually, I got the attention of a biologist, Kent Woodruff, who's well known in you know, the Okanagan. He's uh, a birder also. 
he said, well, we, we don't know anything about this critter, but we want to know more. Would you like to help? And so what ensued was a nest, next nest box project. And it turns out that they enlisted OMAC Wood Products, a timber company in the region to donate timber and evident to schools, maybe woodworking classes. Mm-hmm. Students built all these boxes. And evidently the teacher had said to at least some of them, oh, these are going to be for bluebirds. So somebody emblazoned on a box, welcome home bluebirds, <laughs> which I thought was um, interesting because had the OMAC wood products known it might be for a project that might alter their timber harvesting pra- projects, they might not have been so free in um, donating donating resources for these boxes. Well, anyways, uh, along with Kent's wife, Dawn, we put up 125 of these boxes. And let me tell you, putting up 125 boxes in the forest is a big project. It took us a week. I'm sure. Do you put these up high or how high do you have to put them? Well, it seemed like it was at least 20 feet. So you need a ladder. Oh, yeah. It was a big deal. Uh, uh, at any rate, nesting success was proven, I think, two years later, the first boreal owl occupancy, one of these boxes. But really sad to me is that every last one of them was incinerated in one of the big Okanagan fires, probably 12, no, 15 years ago. Mm. Uh, they had landscape level fires. I, killed firefighters some yeah. of them. so at any rate that was a memorable project and another northern owl i focused on was the great gray and again about 25 years ago i got wind that there uh, from a friend in yakima who had a cabin up there he said you know i've got great grays in my on my property up by tenasket above tenasket and mm-hmm. i was very interested and um paid a visit and sure enough within 15 minutes, saw one, you know, with his help, where to go. Yeah. So became very interested in documenting the nesting of uh, gray grays in the state. And it was an April day, probably around the end of the 80s, maybe early 90s. A friend, Ike Eisenhart and myself were out in the Havilla forest. Mm-hmm. We all go now for gray grays and Williamson sapsuckers and other right. cool birds. And to cover more ground, he and I separated and agreed to meet an hour or so later with news. And I was out in the woods and I heard this muffled, something like that. And so I couldn't see anything in the tree, though. I knew I was, unless it was completely ventriloquial, well, I could not see what was uttering the sound. Mm-hmm. We reconnected at the car and I told him, he said, no, really? And we dashed off into the forest and he's got much better eyes than me. And he peered and peered up and by and by the great gray lifted its head just above the lip of a cutoff stump. And he mm-hmm. could see the, the eyes. Yeah. I, I couldn't see what he was seeing, but he was quite sure that he had seen it. And it turned out to be the first nest. It was in a cutoff snag. And then, so that was cool. And Kent and I actually authored a wasp journal paper documenting this first nest in the Okanagan National Forest. 
Mm-hmm. And finally, on hawk owls, I've had great luck locating hawk owls after these fires. After mm-hmm. fires, the occasional winter visiting hawk owls to northern Washington decided to stay put in the landscape opened up by the fires. Sure. And uh, nested, you know, successfully on a number of occasions, maybe even a successful nesting this year in the Okanagan. I haven't been up there to see it, but I've heard news of it. So Mm -hmm. all three of these northern owls, which are all circumboreal in their distribution, you can go to Mm -hmm. Europe, the Alps, and find at least some of these. And so that's been really rewarding to me is tracking down northern owls with lots of help. Yeah, (laughs) very cool. Dennis, Dennis Paulson said to me, after he started hearing news of boreal owls this far south, he, one year he went out to sunrise and saw them for himself. And mm-hmm. he said to me, he said, I didn't believe it till I saw it for myself. Yeah, yes. I, I have always concentrated more on the natural landscapes. Mm-hmm. Give me a natural environment and I'm much happier than a, than a ornamental uh, habitat. Because it's all about putting pieces together in my mind once I know the basics of the botany. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, I'm looking for this layer of grass for this species. And, and, right. And that's just been an incredible joy to me for, well, over 50 years now is birding by habitat. <laughs> yeah, well, you are the habitat guy, especially shrub step habitat, but it sounds like a lot more habitats than that. Well, uh, sound. Sounds like you got off to a great start with uh, Jim Lane kind of embed- ingraining in you that importance. Yeah. Uh, over the last 50 years, I've made visits to all parts of the American West. And it's just been an utter joy to visit new places in the, all the mountain ranges, valleys. Of, uh, Arizona, especially, is a, I continue to go there frequently, always with a lame, lame guy in, in hand. Yeah. In fact, sure. Rich, Rick Taylor, just in the midst of writing a, a great little book, it's going to be one of the Bob Moore series, Okay, Birds of Arizona, with uh, maps for the very first time of all the Oh, nice. So birders out there, if you're going to be headed to Arizona, you'll want to look for Rick Taylor's book, Birds of Arizona, which will yeah. be published by the Morse Publishing Company. I have no financial involvement in it. I'm just telling you, it's going to be a good Putting in a plug for a good resource for a friend. Sounds like great. Yeah. Good. Uh, So what's in your birding future? Andy, are you, uh, do you have any trips once, you know, COVID calms down, any uh, trips afar or nearby trips or what do you, where do you see yourself heading as a bird? Uh, Well, as one ages, one has to get more realistic about where they go and what they do. So I'm definitely slowing down, but still getting out as much as hate to put a little downer in this, but we don't all get to bird forever. Really? Yeah. Yeah, really? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I kind of gathered that might be in our future. Uh, yeah. That's so anyways, okay. Uh, I love Southeast Arizona. I love New Mexico, Colorado, California despite its 38 million people, by the way, when I left, it had 14 million. So Mm -hmm. that has not been good for habitats in California. 
<laughs> I think the latest census showed that actually California's population, I think, is leveling off or even declining. I think people are leaving more than coming now. Yeah, well, it's become prohibitively expensive. Yeah. So and that's that's gonna... really off topic, isn't it? Yeah, but it I, is. That's okay. <laughs> I do love birding California. And of course, it has a long, long history of birders searching for rare birds. I mean, for sure. They're the almost the epitome of rare bird twitchers. The- yes. The, the, <laughs> yeah, I've, I've, yeah, I know several people who've kind of cut their teeth birding there. And uh, uh, that whole, the whole, there was just a culture of uh, rarity finding and the birding oases in the desert in Southern California and different things that really became, you know, a, a super, almost a phenomenon in birding, I think. Well, it continues. Oh, for sure. It continues. Yeah. Well, I do, I do harbor a desire to do kind of a mini big year next year. Oh, very cool. Yakima County big year or ABA big year? Uh, ABA. So, okay. Very uh, cool. Lots of things get in the way of doing a big year, mainly life. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. It's, it's on my radar to give it a, a good go. Yeah. Well, good for you. Yes. That'll be fun. And you know, especially if you keep it in perspective and aren't, you know, trying to break the world record or the ABA record or something, which is, you know, that's a serious every day for a year undertaking, but just doing your own personal big year, we get around and see a lot of places and see how many birds you can see that could be fun. Yeah. You know, the dry Tortugas is one of the class places on the continent. So I've been there once, but I would like to share it with Ellen who's not been there. So I'll, I'll warn you, my uh, taking my wife to the Dry Tortugas after I had been there, I went once, oh, 15 years ago or so with, with Ken Brown and Bob and Georgia Ramsey in, in a, a small group, and it was a, the most incredible trip. Went out on this boat ride. We stayed for two or three nights there. It was just wonderful. Everything was fabulous. It was beautiful weather, fabulous birding, like a trip of a lifetime. So I told my, I've got to bring you there. It's going to be the greatest thing. We went and the weather was horrible. The wind was so rough. We couldn't even take the dinghy from the boat onto shore. Uh, It was just an awful experience. So be careful what you ask for. (laughs) You you get what comes along. We went to North Carolina earlier this year. Oh, nice. Into the Gulf Stream, which mm-hmm. neither of us had ever done. And that is cool. You get out to where there's flying fish. Yeah. Ellen had never seen. And, you know, birds, which we don't have on the Pacific coast. It was a great trip, except <laughs> it was rough. The skipper, uh, he's well known. It's his business. I've forgotten. Sure. His name. But Patterson. He, yeah. Brian Patterson. Yeah. He said, the seas are going to be very complex today. <laughs> Dang, this is going to be a bad day for Ellen. She gets take, take your Meclizine, <laughs> stay near the rail. Nothing worked. And for the first time ever, I've done at least a pelagic trip every year for the last 50 years. For the first time ever, I, I was incapacitated. Oh, my. <laughs> it was when when Brian said the seas are going to be complex, that means you're basically getting thrown around in a bathtub. Yeah, I've heard that it can be exactly the opposite there too. It can be glass calm and 80 degrees and sunscreen and a broad brimmed hat are your friends. Uh, uh, so I think it's, you know, always catches catch count on the ocean. We are not going to go out of Hatter 
Hatteras anytime soon again. (laughs) (laughs) It's on my to-do list. So uh, wish me better weather or better seas. Yeah, that's be hard to do because I think demand exceeds supply for the spaces on his trips. So Mm -hmm. if you get a bad weather day, it's get on the boat and... Yeah. You just go. Yeah. I, I hear you. Yeah. And you know, most of us are traveling a long way to get there. We're not hanging around for a month waiting for a good day. We, you know, July 23rd or whatever, the date you're going is the date you're going. And yeah. So hopefully it'll be good. Yeah. So you've got some exciting stuff coming up, a uh, personal big year and uh, some more trips to your favorite spots. So that's, that's good things to look forward to. Yeah. Meanwhile, I'm always, you're listing in Yakima County. Mm-hmm. It's not, doesn't have seashore. So we do have fewer, you know, oceanic birds and all that. But, you know, things like ancient merlet have made their way here. Yes. So what is a big, what is a good big year in Yakima County? I, I you know, play at that game every year in Pierce and, and uh, uh, I don't have a feel for Yakima. 250. So, you know, that's better than here. I mean, I, I, I a, a good year here is two thirties. So right. you get a lot more vagrants, a lot more migrants and, and, right. and you have the, the sage habitats and stuff. And you have some elevation there too. And plus the Columbia river is in Yakima County on the mm-hmm. eastern edge. And okay. it's got, it's got Jaegers. It's got one day I saw four species of loons there. Wow. Back in the eighties. So it's, it's hard to bird. I mean, you have to have a boat, but it, it has lots going on, as Mike and Mary Lindeni have proven down at Walla Walla. For sure. Quite have a Walla Walla River Delta in Yakima County, but, you know, we've got potential for most of what they get. You get your shorebirds here and there. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. Well, well Andy, I, want, I always uh, make sure that I give my guests a chance to give a shout out to a cause. If you have a a cause or something you'd like people to make sure they know about, to think of in their charity, what would that be? Well, conservation of the shrub step and Washington Audubon really has, or really is throwing a lot of their resources at this issue. So I'm just going to throw in a plug for supporting uh, Washington Audubon. Where is it on Washington? (laughs) I'll put a link in the podcast notes. I have no idea. I think it's, I don't know. I I thought it was Washington. Anyway, we'll see. Uh, And how can people reach out to you? What's the best way to get a hold of Andy Stepanowski? Well, I'm not on Facebook actively, so that doesn't work. You know, I have a phone number. (laughs) I I won't put that on on here. That's too too spammy. Uh, It's not hard. You can find, uh, you, you can be found. I, I got a hold of you without any difficulty. So we'll leave it at that. Andy, thanks so much for being my guest today. I really appreciate talking to you. Always fun to see you and to hear your stories. Yeah. Thank you, Ed. And uh, wish you the best. Thanks. Well, that wraps up the Bird Banner Podcast, episode number 110 with Andy Stepnowski. I really always have fun when I get to talk to Andy and learn some things today talking to him. He is a fabulously fascinating guy, really thoughtful, and I'm grateful he's on the podcast with me today. Please, if you have ideas of guests that you'd like to hear from on the Bird Banner podcast, please let me know. You can contact me at birdbanner.com using the contact page or on Facebook as 
uh, Bird Banter, on Twitter, Bird Banter, wherever. Another cool thing I wanted to mention is that I'm on the board at WAS, and WAS has arranged for members of WAS to have access as part of their membership to Birds of the World. Birds of the World is a fabulous collection of monographs on literally every species in the world collected in an online resource. And you can subscribe to that from, I think, a $6 monthly fee uh, through Cornell Lab of Ornithology. But as a member of WAS, we have arranged for all members to get access to that. So if you want to join WAS, it's an annual subscription that turns out to be less than the subscription to Birds of the World, and you have full access to Birds of the World. So it's a bargain. Get to be a WASP member in addition. Hear about our great field trips and the other benefits of being in WASP. So think about it. Join WASP. Anyway, thanks for listening. I put in my plug for uh, the organization I love, WASP, and that I'm on the board for. So thanks for listening again. Until next time, good birding and good day.